0: so i want to ask you a question as we get started what how much faith is enough most of us would say i don't know but probably more than i have right now didn't jesus say something about oh you of little faith right so we don't want to be that person that has little faith we want to have enough faith right um and so that's kind of the question we want to ask and And that's generally how we approach this subject of faith. We often say, do I have enough faith? I could use more. It's always good to have more. I don't want to be caught with too little faith. So that's kind of the question that we generally, how we approach it. But as we go through the passage this weekend, I'm going to show you that that's not even the right question. Uh, The the question isn't how much faith you have. It's a different question that we should be answering. So uh, we're going to jump into the text. We're in Mark chapter 9. So if, you'll want, if you want to follow along with me, uh, I'm going to break the passage up into two parts because there's two different events, but they're tied together. I think they're tied together by Mark, the author, and they're tied together because Mark is, is um, pulling a seam open so that we can, we can gaze in on this spirit world. And uh, he's going to give us two different views of the spirit world. Uh, the first one is uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 2. And this is where Jesus goes up on the mountain with uh, Peter, James, and John. So let me start reading. I'm going to start reading verse 2 of chapter 9 of Mark. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. They become the inner circle. Whenever you see Peter, James, and John, they're the inner circle. And so you'll see this very often that Jesus pulls these three from the rest of the group, from the twelve, and He uh, has special moments with them. And these, This is one of those special moments. He takes Peter, James, and John with Him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. And then He was transfigured before them. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, He describes it. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking to Jesus. Let's just stop for a minute. So we know, and we're going to talk a little bit about this, Moses is up on a mountain, Mount Sinai, and this is where he gets the two tablets, the Ten Commandments. And so it's very famous where Moses is up on the mountain. Elijah was a prophet, and we're going to talk a little bit more about Elijah. But what's interesting to me is the phrase, uh, there's a couple of times in the Bible, one after the resurrection where Jesus meets the disciples, they don't recognize him. And then he says, oh, you have little faith, I think. And then he begins to go and tell them, they recognize who he is, and, they rec- and he begins to tell them where he is mentioned in the Old Testament. I would have loved to have been there for that conversation. This is one of those other ones where he's talking with Elijah and Moses. Jesus is talking with Elijah and Moses. And you say, well, what is he talking about? Wouldn't you love to be able to hear that conversation? Well, we're not told. So Peter said to Jesus, all this is going on you know it's it's just you know blowing their minds Peter said to Jesus Rabbi it's good for us to be here let us put up three shelters it's the word we use for tabernacles one for you one for Moses and one for Elijah and then we kind of have an editorial comment made by Mark he did not know what to say they were so frightened understandable right Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly they looked around and they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So this is this ongoing thing where Mark continually tells people that he heals, and, P, and here, the three disciples don't tell anyone what you just saw until after the, res, after the resurrection um, or rising from the dead. Um, and so, they, it says they kept the matters to themselves discussing what rising from the dead meant. So see, they're not getting, they're not understanding, and we thought, we've we been talking about this, they're not getting the idea that Jesus is going to die and then rise from the dead. They, What's he talking about? Well, you know, it's, it, they're discussing this on the way down. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? See, we're back to Elijah. And Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. When, why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer uh, much and be rejected? <clears throat> but I tell you, Elijah has come. And they've done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. So, Elijah appeared with Moses on the mountain with Jesus, and the, the seam of heaven was revealed. The glory of heaven was revealed. Now what is interesting here is, Jesus says, Elijah must come. But what, Eli- what, what Jesus is saying, and we'll see this later on, is that Jesus says Elijah already has come, and his, his name is John the Baptist. He's the forerunner. And you're going to see where Jesus is going to say, Elijah has come, it is John. And notice what he says about John here. Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wish, just as it was written about him. Now we know that John the Baptist, we know that he was thrown into prison, and ultimately beheaded. That's what happened to him. Now, on the mountain, Jesus reveals himself to be the glory of God in human form. Okay? And this is what the writer of Hebrews meant. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verse 3. The sun is the, in this meaning, the Son of God. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful words. So this is the writer of Hebrews saying that Jesus is the Son of God and contains or is the radiance of God's glory. He's similar to Moses though, in a sense. You might remember um, in the Old Testament, the first time Jesus comes down from the mountain, the people are, uh, the camp is in in chaos because the people have uh, waited uh, more than 40 days, and uh, Moses hasn't come down, and so they think that he's abandoned them, or at least something's happened to him. So they go to Aaron, who is supposed to know better, and they talk him into building this golden calf, and they begin to worship this golden calf, and all, all kind of debauchery and things are happening in the camp, and Moses comes down and he sees what's going on, and he is beside himself, he is livid, and he throws the, the two tablets down, and they bust into pieces, and he cleans the camp out, he takes care of it. So he has to go back up on the mountain to get the, the tablets again, right? Because he broke the other tablets. He threw them down. And so as he's coming down a second time, his face is glowing the glory of God in his face to the point that he has to wear a veil because people are looking at him and, you know, and they're just amazed. They're, you, he's got the glory of God. So in a similar way, Jesus didn't just have his face glow; His whole body glowed the glory of God. He is the glory of God. And so he's similar to Moses in a sense that when Moses came down, he reflected the glory of God. But Jesus, unlike Moses, is the source of his own glory The glory of God emanates from him. So Jesus doesn't just point to the glory of God. He is the glory of God in human form. Okay? And that's really important to understand. Now what we have here is we have the spiritual veil of another world parted. And the glory of heaven is revealed to Peter, James, and John. This is something that is otherworldly. It's something that they have never experienced before, and they've never seen it before. And they were overwhelmed by it to the point that Peter didn't know what to say. It was spectacular. It was awesome. It was amazing. It was beyond description. They were overwhelmed by the glory of God in the presence of Moses and Elijah. And so Peter basically just blurts out the first thing he can think of is, well, should I build shelters for you guys? And then out of the voice, out of the cloud, a voice says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Here's the father affirming the son. And Jesus is the only one. And this is really important for us to understand, because what we tend to do, religion tries to bridge the gap between a holy God and sinful man by doing this. Well, let's just be better. Let's just work harder. Let's just try to do enough good that we can get up to heaven. And we'll never reach heaven. We'll never be good enough. We all, we, the Bible says we all fall short of the glory of God. We'll never approach the glory of God. Jesus is the one who is the glory of God. And the glory of God came from heaven down to earth. So heaven reached down to earth. And that is the gospel. The gospel isn't that we save ourselves, we work harder, we, we, we try to clear, clean ourselves up and make ourselves white. There's only one who is whiter than the whitest than any bleach could do, right? Isn't that what it said on the mountain? It was whiter than anything, right? And what they're talking about is purity, that that only the Son, Jesus Christ, who is the glory of God in human form, can come from heaven to earth to be the rescue party of one that we desperately need. He is the bridge. He is the only one. Um, now, so John, Peter, James, and John have experienced something that no one else in the history of time has really experienced. They have witnessed the glory of this other dimension. And they have seen the, the beauty and the glory and the power and the majesty of it. It is before their eyes and they were in awe of it. They were, they were just taken aside to it. They couldn't believe it. They couldn't describe it. And Jesus immediately says, don't tell anybody about this. Keep it to yourselves until after. All, you know, after the death, burial, and resurrection. Now... The reason I think that, G, that Mark puts these two stories together is because we're going to see another dimension, uh, the spiritual dimension, but it's not going to be of heaven, it's going to be of hell. And that's where we come to our text in chapter 9, verse 14. Because they come down from the mountain and they immediately experience something. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Notice Jesus' reaction to that. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the Spirit saw Jesus. Now notice this. This is very insignificant. In, in, in it doesn't say when the boy saw him. What does it say? When the Spirit saw him, saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? What do we have going on here? We have... The tearing open, the opening up of the spiritual dimension again, just like on the mountain, but it is not revealing the glory of heaven now. It is, uh, it is uh, revealing the principalities and powers of darkness that are holding this boy hostage. And he says, from childhood he has been held hostage, he answered. It is oft- it, 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 notice what it does here. It is often thrown him into a fire or water to kill him and then the father pleads with Jesus but if you can do anything to take pity on us and help us it's kind of what he had asked the disciples to do if you can said Jesus everything is possible for the one who believes Immediately the boy's father explained, I do believe, help, my, um, help overcome my unbelief. Now, you should underline that verse in your Bible. I do believe, but help my unbelief. What is he saying? I do believe, uh, but I, don't, I know I don't believe enough, right? I don't have enough. Isn't that what we say? When Jesus saw the crowd running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit It seems like he wants to do this before the crowd's there to witness this. He rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. So after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind, this kind come on, out only by prayer. Some of your translations may prayer and fasting. It's not prayer and fasting. It's just prayer. Fasting is a later addition that somebody threw in there. Let's, let's I want to draw, and this this is where your notes are going to finally come in, right? I want to draw two applications from this passage. And they're very important, I think. And hopefully we will learn, relearn, be reminded, whatever you want to say, some important things. And the first one is this, that there's a spiritual dimension that powerfully affects our daily lives. So the transfiguration on the mountain shows us As the veil of heaven is open and the glory of God is revealed, and it is powerful, it is awesome, it is amazing, so amazing that Peter, James, and John don't know what to do. They don't even know how to respond to it. There's a power, there's an authority, there's an awesomeness that they see that they can't even, they've never seen it before. They've never seen such whiteness, brightness, glory. It's hard for them to even find words to describe it. And so, what Mark is showing us is that there's a spirit world that is just as real as the physical world that we come in contact with every day. We know there's a physical world. Nobody has to convince us of that. But when we start talking about a spirit world, we go, ooh, hang on. Where are you going with that? And I think that's why Mark places the story of this demon-possessed boy shortly after this glory of God being revealed, because in the demon-possessed boy, we have the veil of hell opened up, and we have the spirit world of principalities and powers of darkness being revealed on this young boy who has just tormented him and, and knocked him down and destroyed him, and it's ugly and it's dirty and it's black and it's awful. And it's powerful. Because even the disciples are not able to release this demon, release this boy from this demon. And I believe that Mark is doing this because he wants us to say, he wants to us to understand that there is a very real spirit world. Even though we can't see it, we can't touch it, we know it's there. And it has an effect on the world around us. Some people would say, well, the boy merely had a physical ailment. Well, if, it's, that'd be, if that's hard to accept for a number of reasons. One, Jesus didn't take it that way. Jesus clearly saw this as a demonic possession. It wasn't a physical condition. It was a demonic possession. It was something that was affecting this boy. It was a, something other than... It it had physical manifestations, but it had a spiritual source. Jesus certainly teaches us that. We saw the glorious part on the mountain of that spiritual dimension. Now we're seeing the dark part in this boy as the demon holds him prisoner and finally shrieks out of the boy. C.S. Lewis, uh, and I know it's a couple weeks in a row I'm quoting Lewis, but Here's a, a quote about this whole idea of you know, uh, let me just read it to you, and we'll 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 talk about it just for a second. He says this, "There are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Some would say that he's saying, the two mistakes we make is to say there is no demon, there are no spirits, there is no spirit world. That's one mistake. The other one is to see a demon behind every bush. And he's right. We have to, we have to understand that there is, uh, there is the spirit world, and, but we need to not just dismiss it, but we also need not to overemphasize it. And Christians have gone both ways on this. Paul tells us something very important and I wrote the reference down in your notes in Ephesians. Notice what Paul says. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take stand against the devil's scheme. Now notice what he says next. This is very important. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What Paul is saying is that there, whether you can see it or not, you know Paul is saying it is there. It is active. It is powerful as ever. It's not gone today. It is still alive and well today. The question I want to ask you is, are you looking beyond this physical world to a very real spiritual world? And and see the spiritual forces that are working in this world. Now let me give you an example of how that works. Probably in your own life. If somebody says or does something to you that is hurtful, have you ever felt like there's this power, this spiritual push for you to get even to say inappropriate things to them to to do things that are inappropriate to escalate whatever it is have you ever have you ever felt that there's this this and you say well where did that come from have you ever had something happen to you and you 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 overreact too much and you say, "Well, where did that come from? Where is that encouragement to do evil coming from?" <laughs> have you ever have you ever used your tongue? And we talked a couple, little bit about this a couple weeks ago, where you were, used it as a blessing to somebody. You just poured blessing on to a person. You affirmed them. You showed your love to them. You spoke words, of powerful words of love and encouragement. And then within an hour, you are cursing another human being out with the same mouth. And you say, how in the world did that happen? Well, that's kind of what James says. (laughs) James says the tongue is also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body. It sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. You see what James is saying? What James is saying is the same thing that Paul is saying, the same thing that Jesus demonstrated that there is a spirit world that can take your members, your hands, your feet, your tongue, your eyes, your ears for good or for evil. Essentially, what Paul's saying is. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christ follower, if you're a child of God, and you are not understanding that you're in a spiritual battle, you are a fool. And you're going to get destroyed. And you're going to be used by the enemy. Why is it that there's so much conflict within churches? Why is it that Christians can't forgive one another? Why is it they're, they're, they, they tend to be so judgmental and petty? How is that possible? If we all love Jesus, how is that possible? It's because we're in a spiritual battle and the enemy loves to divide and conquer. And the enemy loves it when we fight. What did Jesus say? The world will know that you belong to me when you what? Love one another. And forgive one another. And overlook one another's... You see see what's going on here? So we can be very theological about this and say, yes, heaven was opened and the glory of God was revealed and this young man, the powers of evil were defeated. We could walk out and feel good about ourselves. But until we see that we're in a world that is a physical world, but if if we could pull the veil back in this room, you would see a spiritual battle going on. And many times, and I believe in Western cultures, the spiritual battle is very subtle. It's very behind the scenes. It's very kind of, you know, they, it's, it's just kind of very subtle. You go to third world countries and it is right in your face, man. It is blatantly there. Not, not in the western world, but it is still as Real. Satan's not a fool, and the, the powers of darkness aren't idiots. They, they know when to strike and what to use and how to do it. What I'm suggesting is we must always have our spiritual eyes on. We need to look beyond the physical and see the spiritual dimension of our struggle. And this must lead us to prayer. So now we want to talk about that question that the disciples had. Why couldn't we cast out this demon? Why couldn't we do it? Well, let's talk about that because that's kind of what the the next point is. And the point is, it's not how much faith you have it's where you place it. It's not how much faith you have, it's where you place it. We always get caught up with, I wish I had more faith. I don't have enough faith, and I don't want to be disappointing to Jesus, so I wish I could increase my faith. And in reality, it's where you place it, not how much you have. You know, you can get on an airplane and be terrified of airlines, and airplanes, and pilots, and everything, but you know, you have to fly. And you could have little or no faith that you're going to make it there. But if you have a good pilot and a good plane, you're going to make it. You could have all the faith in the world in the airlines and the pilot and the system and and get on a plane and have the plane uh, either have a mechanical problem or the pilot just not very good, and he could run you into a mountain. You can have all the faith in the world and you're still dead. So it doesn't matter how much faith you have. It's where you place it, where you place it. Now let's look at two things, because there's two things. I want to look at, and it's going to sound odd, I'm going to look at the faithlessness of the disciples, and I want to look at the faith of the man, the Father. So let's talk a little bit about the faithlessness about the man. Notice the question, after. let me read the last part of the passage, because this is where we pick it up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out, he replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. <clears throat> so the question is, why couldn't the disciples heal the boy? And that, I think this is one of the dialogue that the religious leaders and the, the, the disciples were going back and forth on. They were arguing about something. Well, they were arguing as to why they couldn't cast out the demon. Now, understand, we've read through the Gospel of Mark so far. These are the, the 12, and you have to exclude the three. Are, they've been up on the mountain, so it's not them. So you have you know, those that were not on the mountain with Jesus were trying to cast this demon out of this little boy. And they weren't able to do it. So the question is, why couldn't they do it? Because, understand, they had gone out previously. Jesus had sent them out. And they had gone, and they had healed, they had preached the gospel, and they had cast out demons before. They'd done this before. This isn't new to them. If you read earlier in the Gospel of Mark, this is something they have done before, but now they've, they're, they're met with this little boy and they can't, they can't do anything here. And the question is, why? I believe the reason that they couldn't cast out these demons this demon, was that they did not exercise their faith through prayer, but instead they tried to do it on their own. What does Jesus say? No, this one only comes out by prayer. In other words, what's prayer? Prayer is where we talk to God and say, God, I need your help. God, I can't do this on my own. God, you're God and I'm not. Tell me what to do here. Help me. Give me the power. Does God honor prayers like that? Absolutely he does. I believe they attempted to operate on their own gifts, their own abilities, their own power without seeking the power and presence of God. They probably went in and said, well, we've done this before. We know what to do. We cast out demons. You did it, you did it, you did it. We all did it. So they went in and they thought, we don't need God for this. We already know what to do. We know the words or the method or the technique. And don't we all get all caught up in that, right? There's a certain methodology or a certain you know, and you know, people who cast out demons today say, you must say this, and you mustn't say that, you must do this, and you mustn't do that. And I think, really, when you look at it, essentially what it comes down to is, are you going to depend upon God or not? You try to go in on your own or what? We must never assume that we bring enough to the table in these spiritual battles. That unless God empowers our gifts, abilities, and resources, we're fighting a losing battle. Now, I want you to jump back just for a minute, and the reference will be up on the screen. Old Testament. One of the most famous stories in the Old Testament, it's David and Goliath. David makes an incredible statement there. And it really is the heart of what we're talking about. And, and let me read it to you. Just listen to it and, and, and kind of. So, you have the Philistines. The Philistines are the enemy of Israel, and they're on one side of the valley. And you have the Israeli army on the other side. And David's brothers are on the Israeli side and the Hebrew side. And his father, Jesse, sends David to the fight. And David hears the giant come out every day and taunt Israel and say, Send your best warrior out, and I'll just kill him. And, our God is better than your God. And David hears it, and he is beside himself. He is livid. He's, he, he's kind of going, who's going to go down there and shut this knucklehead up? Somebody needs to go down there and teach this guy a lesson. Now, again, Goliath is a giant. He is a warrior. He is fearless. fearless. And, and so you have this going on. So finally, uh, David is... Um, he goes, he's taken to King Saul, and Saul tries to outfit him with his armor, and David can't wear it. It's constricting, and, he, and he's, he's not as the same size as Saul, so it doesn't work, and so finally David says, no, you know, I don't need that, and he grabs his sling, and he grabs some stones, and he walks down into the valley, because every day Goliath would walk down, and they were, Israel was supposed to send their warrior down, and David walks down, Into the face of the giant, and this is what it says. Let me read it to you. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with a sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. So David says, I'm not coming in my own power, I'm not going to tell you what I'm bringing. I mean, you'd laugh if you knew what I was bringing as a weapon. It is so, like, not a good weapon for what we're going to do here. But you come in all your power. You have the sword. You have a spear. You have a javelin. You have armor. You have an armor bearer who carries stuff for you. And then he says this. This day, notice he doesn't say I will. He says the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. All those who gathered here will know that this is not by the sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. Underlying that, The battle is the Lord's, and He will give all of you into our hands. How many battles that were meant for the Lord to fight have you been trying to go in on your own power to win? And it didn't work out. This past week, How many times have you kept Jesus on the sideline and said, no, i got a play that will work. I've got a methodology. I've got gifts and I've got ability. I don't need you. You stay on the sideline. I'll call you for the big one. Many of our struggles and problems have a spiritual component. And we will never win our spiritual battles unarmed and unaided. Paul says, put on the full armor of God. And don't go into battle alone. There is one who will go into battle before you. How many battles are you fighting alone and unarmed? Our faith is, and this is where we get to faith, our faith is demonstrated as we look to Jesus for the big and small struggles of our lives, understanding that there is a spiritual battle taking place. Faith is acknowledging our need for Jesus. That's essentially what it comes down to And, and, and what was going on with the disciples is we don't need Him. We've done this before. Paul says there's a spiritual battle going on. Don't be stupid. Don't go into battle alone. Put on the full armor of God. Don't go, don't go into battle alone. All right, so that's faith, right? Faith is, is acknowledging that we need Jesus. So then we see the wavering faith of a father. So let me ask you a question. Did the father have faith in Jesus? absolutely. He brought his son to him, right? That's faith, right? Isn't that like, I don't know where to turn, but to you. I'll turn to you. I need you. That's what he was saying. That's faith. It may not be a lot, but it's, it's faith. And I love the confession of the father. And, and he, says, he says, do you believe? And he says, yes, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. He says, I believe, but I struggle with unbelief. I'm sorry, I'm just being honest with you. And most of us would say the same thing, wouldn't we? Again, it's not how much faith you have it's where you place it. See, he admitted that his faith was flawed, but he still looked to Jesus. Something his disciples failed to do. It's not how much faith you have, it's where you place it. Faith is seeing that you're over your head. That even the most minute problems, we need to look to Jesus. More, not less. We've got to stop putting him on the sidelines. We've got to stop saying, I can handle this. And We've got to stop not having our eyes open to the spiritual dimension of the world that we live in. Let me tell you a really quick story, and I'm running out of time very fast. So there's a story where the nation of Israel is taking the land. God promised Abraham that he'd give them land. And so the nation of Israel under, uh, under Joshua, it goes, they go in, and they take this great city called Jericho. It was a huge city. It was very fortified. And there was a plan, a strict plan, and God gave Joshua directions. And Joshua followed the directions. The nation of Israel followed directions to the letter. And they acknowledged that they needed God because they could not do this and the walls of Jericho came down, and they just totally destroyed Jericho. Then they come to this next city, and it's a very small city. It's called Ai. Ai. <laughs> and basically, Joshua says, well, this is a very small city. We don't really need to even send all our forces there. We'll just send a small army there. We'll knock off Ai, and we'll move on to the next town, and so on. So they did that. They sent, um, they sent a small army, and the small army was devastated, by this little dinky city of Ai. And Joshua's beside himself, and he goes to God, he goes, God, what's, what's going on here? Why, 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 why would you allow this to happen to your people? It's an embarrassment. And, and basically what God says to Joshua, he says there's sin in the camp. You never bothered to consult me before you went to Ai. He said, well, you we to have this. this a small little dinky city. And they got whooped. And many good men died. And God said, you never consulted me. You thought you could do this on your own. You can't. Remember, it's not how much faith you have. It's where you place your faith. When you doubt, and we all do, look for Jesus. He's the one who meets us in our doubts. Now let me tell you where we're going to go next weekend. Maybe some of you, if not many of you, have dreamed of doing something really great for God. You said, I just want to do something great for God, but I really don't know how to get started. Well, next week we're going to, we're going to, I'm going to show you, um, each and every one of you, how you can do something great for God. The only thing that will keep you from doing that is you. We'll talk about that next weekend. But let me lead us in prayer. Father, uh, we are people that overlook the spirit world that is happening right around us right now. We overlook it. We downplay it more than we dare. We also, Father, try to go at it alone too often. We put Jesus on the sideline rather than calling out to him. And we feel defeated and we feel discouraged because life is getting us down. We're carrying baggage. We're fighting battles that are not ours. And we wonder why it's not working out the way it should or the way we think it should. We're not consulting you. We're not looking to you. We're not putting on the armor of God. We're not doing any of that. We have been told, we have been taught, we have been warned, and yet we go at it by ourselves and wonder why we live a defeated life. May this weekend, may we take some time and really look to you and maybe repent and maybe ask for forgiveness, but may we take some tangible moment with you this weekend and reflect on our desperate need for you every step of the way and Understand that without you and without the armor that you've given us, we are sitting ducks. And may this weekend be a change in the direction of the way we battle against the forces of evil and the powers and principalities. May your kingdom have victory this week because your people are taking you off the sideline and putting you into the game, Jesus. May that be true of our lives, this church, and this community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.